Sly Dog Music Cast. Now here's your host, the Sly Dog. Hello and welcome back to the Sly Dog Music Cast. I'm your host, the Sly Dog, and joining me, a returning guest from the Pods and Sods Network. When I asked him what he wanted to do tonight, he said, let's smoke some weenies. But I know he was just cracking rise. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Jumby Miller. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, all out of the gates with the Smack and the Clowns reference. I love it. Yeah, had to. Yeah, I've, I've been I've been trying out these new intros where I do a, an intro for someone that's a lyric from the topic we're going to be discussing. So that was the one it. I picked for you. <laughs> Love it. I am honored. Thanks for having me back on. And thanks for talking about Sea uh, Walsh with me. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is something we've kind of been talking about doing probably for over two years now, doing this Steve Walsh retrospective. And now is finally the time, I think, to do it. I don't know why now is, but it's kind of like I saw it on my list of episodes. I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Like, I'm in the mood to talk to Steve Walsh. So we're going to be covering uh, his solo works and his outside of Kansas projects, like including Streets. So it's going to be an album by album. This is going to be a really fun deep dive, I think. So the challenge here, I think, is we've done two Kansas episodes at this point. So we've kind of covered our histories mm-hmm. um, of Kansas. So I think I'll leave that. We'll leave that out. But what we will get into is um, Steve himself uh the the kind of enigmatic almost unknowable lead singer of kansas uh, to me he's always had an air of mystique and uh ever since i got into kansas like i like learning about bands i like learning about what the members are like especially kind of like the the heaviest contributors like i want to know about carrie liver livgren he writes a lot of lyrics i want to know about steve he's the front man but he also writes a lot of interesting lyrics and steve has always kind of come off as almost i don't want to say unknowable but maybe like there's a veneer of mystique about it. Like it's hard to kind of find a lot of interviews. It's hard to find a lot of, you know, video of him sitting down and talking like, and I know he doesn't give many interviews in general. So what, what's your kind of view on him always been? Has he always given off that veneer of mystique, even when you were a younger fan? Yeah. It's funny that you say that because absolutely, you know, and when I was doing pods and sods, he was, he was at the top of my dream guest lists, right? John Deacon and Steve Walsh, right? Um, and it was it was for that reason, you know, there aren't any really great long form interviews w- out there with him. Right. There's, you know, and he you know, he I think that's part of what we'll maybe talk about when we get to streets or whatever. But, you know, he I don't think he enjoyed that side of the business. I think he liked being a performer and singing and writing songs. But I don't think he was into being a, a rock star celebrity doing you know, doing interviews and, and being, you know, sort of a persona out there like that. Right. Like if you, the clips you do see of him, you know, he's, if he answers a question, he answers it pretty succinctly, you know, he's pretty humble, you know, it's maybe later in life. Right. At least what I've seen. Right. And the few right. times that I've been around him with, you know, not, a, not for hours and hours, but for minutes and minutes, you know, at meet and greets and whatever, um, you know, out by the bus, I've met him a few times, you know, he was always pretty quiet, right? Honestly, you know, not like um, flamboyant, pretty much, you know, would answer a question politely, yes, sir, and that kind of thing, right? And, you know, he wasn't, um, you know, my perception is very limited, right? But, you know, I didn't get any impression that he, you know, strove to be a rock star, per se. Um, I could be way off on that. But again, that's just my perception of it. Um, and it's funny, you know, so we're going to start on schemer dreamer obviously and we did talk about our kansas history um but i remember when the album came out actually 
You know, it was because uh, I was an active fan. It was between Monolith and Audiovisions, and my first concert was Audiovisions. Um, so it was 1980 when Schemer Dreamer and Seeds of Change both came out. And I would have been nine, right? So I didn't have a full grasp of, you know, politics of bands i still don't whatever right but you know i remember noticing like huh that's interesting right i love kansas and now he's got a record and he's where's robbie's record first off right but right. you know i remember them coming out um i don't know which one was first but they were both in 1980 um and probably my dad explained it to me at the time or whatever but um yeah that was probably a long answer to your question and i probably took a detour there no, that's really good. It actually uh, leads into something interesting I found out, like doing my own research. And I spent hours these last couple of weeks just scouring message boards, archive things on internet just to find stuff about these records and stuff about Steve Walsh himself. And one thing I did turn up about Schemer Dreamer before we get into it really deep is that it did kind of come about as a result of him watching Kerry start to do his own record. And Kerry's did come out first. Mm. Uh, Kirstner was a kind of reticent to kind of like let him do it they're kind of like i don't know but you know they were huge at the time so they kind of let him do it so and i kind of forget how close those two albums are to audio vision so that's a lot of that's a lot of kansas music like if you're a fan of that stuff in that time that was a good year for you yeah it's interesting too because audio visions is one of those records they kind of consider as a low point you know when i when i had all the members of kansas on my podcast i kept cheerleading for can you play another song off of audio decisions besides hold on right it was always hold on right. right um just can you rip out a relentless or no one together and you know i would appeal to each member as i had them on the episode or <laughs> so you know i i think that's a record that they don't that they don't really remember fondly or an era that they don't remember fondly so i say that because you know it makes me think that if they were coming apart you know, to the extent that they were diverging. And we've talked about this in previous episodes, previous episodes and the themes that Carrie wanted to write about and the themes that Steve wanted to write about and the styles and, you know, Carrie's faith and that kind of stuff, right? They were diverging. So if they diverged on these two solo records and they got back on audio visions, you know, that's maybe why they didn't connect. Like that maybe felt like the point for them that, you know, it, they were over, right? Um, in that uh, incarnation, so to speak, right? Yeah. Uh, that's that's the impression I've I've always had as as a fan. That's probably really accurate. The other thing I read that I thought was interesting, and I take I say this and take this with a grain of salt because it's the internet. It's not really cited where this comes from, but someone wrote that Steve, as far back as Point of No Return, was kind of getting dissatisfied with the direction the band was going and wanted to go a more straightforward direction that he would kind of take the streets, like you know, straight up melodic rock, which. Mm -hmm. I don't know how true that is, but like just from from what from what I read there, like he he was kind of feeling dis, disenfranchised around the end of the point of no return tour and had started writing for what would become Schemer Dreamer around that time and held those songs back until the solo yeah. album. So yeah, it's funny. I mean, you know, you can't talk about Steve Walsh's discography. What was the word you used? Disillusion, disenfranchised, right? Yeah. You know, there's there's kind of a lot in in him and his relationship with Kansas through Freaks of Nature, somewhere elsewhere, you know, eventually what led to Native Window and all that stuff. We'll kind of talk about that through the timeline. But, you know, it's like this weird sort of dance of him getting closer and further apart. Right. Um, you know, and Carrie's obviously related to that. But I think his solo albums kind of fall interesting along that path. 
Right, because none of them, like, there's really no, with the solo records at least, Streets is a different story. There's no really consistent through line, I think, audio-wise, because the the first one sounds way different than the second one, and then the third one sounds similar to the second one, but not quite, and then his most recent one is completely on the other side of the realm of what he was doing on the two prior to that, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's it, it really is an interesting run of stuff. But, yeah, yeah. But cool. you know, compelling. I you know, it's he's one of the artists I go back to. You know, I and we'll talk about Glossolalia probably at, at ad nauseum. But you know, that's I go to that more than I go to any Kansas record. Yeah, I know what you mean. That that is a uh, regular in the in the stereo here. That's. <laughs> I mean, I I. I Personally, I would put that up there with those Kansas classics like like Leftover Turn, like Point of No Return, like Audio Visions. So yeah, before we get to the albums, uh, I just wanted to do my little uh, rundown I always do when we do something like this. Okay, Steve Walsh, uh, born June 15th, 1951, St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, sang in a number of local groups around, around Kansas, including White Clover, which would later morph into the band Kansas. Uh, they put out their first record in, I believe, 1974, would lead, lead up to 1980's Schemer Dreamer. January 26th, 1980. This is the first solo release uh, he did outside of Kansas, released on Kirshner CBS. Uh, Kerry Livgren, Phil Ehart, Rich Williams, Steve Morse all made guest appearances on here. Um, I like this one. Uh, it rides the line between Southern Rock and AOR. It's really interesting. It took me a long time to warm up to this album. I remember getting this really early on in my Kansas fandom, and it just didn't stick with me at first and i'm not sure why like it's not really it's not really as catchy as the street stuff mm -hmm. it's not as it's not as proggy as kansas either like it, it's it's a strange album for him for sure but uh it it grew on me as we were getting ready to do this um it's an interesting mix of songs there's a bunch of straight up rockers and there's kind of dramatic ballads that seems to be the two modes um and it's got future counting crows guitarist david By bryson he's playing oh. guitar in this album which I is did. interesting. Oh, I did not know that. I didn't know that's who that was. Yep. Uh, he doesn't play on the whole album. I think he just plays on a few tracks. But yeah, very interesting. Um, and Steve plays drums on So Many Nights, which I thought was cool. Um, highlights from this one, I like the title track, which kind of mixes with uh, that old Arthur Crudup uh, song, That's All Right, or Elvis, uh, however you know it. Uh, get Too Far is cool. I like just how it feels. And Wait Until Tomorrow, to me, is the most interesting song. The buildings here, conflicting style, and the 
church bells never ring The statues faces full of sadness And no one laughs, no one smiles kind of starts like a guy waking up late and he's thinking about the horrors of the world and it kind of breaks into this straight up prog number like this is the song that would have fit most at home on a kansas album mm -hmm. so yeah interesting record uh funny weird james bond-esque cover art <laughs> uh what's your thoughts on schemer dreamer eric i mean first off it's one of my least favorite album covers of all time i freaking <laughs> hate that album cover so much um, even as a kid, I remember thinking, what the hell is that? Right. Um, you know, he would wear just those little shorts on stage, which is totally fine. He would do that hand stand on his keyboard, which is great. I think the stadium is like maybe that Texas jam, you know, there's probably photos from that or whatever, but, um, I'm assuming that's the giant mountain of cocaine behind him. I'm not sure <laughs> if I had to guess, that's probably what it is, but yeah, it's the gun. The, gun. <laughs> the guns are just ridiculous. It's really yeah. not good. Like if I, you know, I remember, I remember being a Kansas fan and, you know, if I ever had any intentions of like, you know, trying to sell a friend of mine, like Craig or somebody like, oh man, you got to check this out. They, it wasn't going to work just because of the album cover, honestly. <laughs> um, so that, that's not good. Um, he actually doesn't have great album covers, but they're interesting, whatever. Uh, I like what you said about wait until tomorrow. That's very true. Um, and you mentioned about Steve Morse. You know, this is this is years before, obviously, he joins Kansas. So it's an yeah. interesting, you know, sort of incestuous early um, recording between him and Steve Morse, which is which is really cool. Um, but and also Tim Garrett, I, I'm not sure how to say his last name, but he's the drummer for Streets as well. He plays drums on this, too. Yeah. Um, and uh, I will say this on that Audio Visions tour, they did one song each from their solo albums. So from Carrie's album, they did Mask of the Great Deceiver, which, you know, Steve sang, Ronnie James Dio sang it on the record, Carrie's record, yeah. but Steve would sing that on the Audio Visions tour. And then from this record, they did uh, You Think You Got It Made, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Um, yeah. Um, and I, you know, I remember, um, again, being it, it was my first tour, Kansas tour, and I remember noticing the um, felt deliberate equity. Oh, they're going to do one of yours, they're going to do one of his. Right. Yep. Um, I remember noting that as a kid, but, you know, I like Schemer Dreamer. It's not one of my go to records. It's one I probably listen to maybe once every year or two. Right. Um, the standouts for me are, you know, you think you got it made just because that memory and then every step of the way, I think, is fantastic. Right. It has that oh, sort yeah. of like in excess of the stairs where it kind of continually escalates. It just has that vibe to it. You know, it's a bit of a, a groove. Call the flat plane 
Kansas, Kansas, a long, long time ago, when they'd seen the gates of glory and the fire down below. The many great decisions carved the people in this place. You can tell the strength that's in them. You can see it in their face. Well, it's been nine or ten years since I started my ramble. You know, it's only what seven songs. Yeah, really you know, short. Yeah, it. You know, to your point, where it was maybe I don't want to say a direct response or reaction to Carrie's solo album, but you know, because of what you just said and the fact that it's you know it's not you know twelve sweeping songs, right? It you know maybe it is you know was a little bit more hurried. You know, it, was, it was it was maybe uh, I hate to say it, but maybe it was a bit of well I can do that right right <laughs> and the one thing it's I'm glad you brought up seeing the audio visions tour and doing those two songs because I always thought it was interesting that they did Mask of the Great Deceiver because I forget what song it is now but there is a song on the Carrie Livburn album with a Steve Walsh lead vocal mm-hmm. you would think that would be the pick but it ended up being the Mask of the Great Deceiver which is yeah. I don't know, I've, I've always found that kind of strange. Like, I mean, I love Steve singing that song, but it's, I, I would think the obvious pick would be the one that he actually sang. So who knows? Yeah. Yeah. That, and there is a full video of a show from that tour, Houston, I think it is. Yep. Probably find it on the YouTubes. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. But yeah, let's, uh, let's get back to the cocaine mountain on the album. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I actually, I was talking to Craig about doing this episode and I mentioned, I have that on vinyl too. I was like, I just got Skeever Dreamer on on vinyl. I can so I can marvel at the glorious uh, cover art. And he just messaged me back saying, "You say that like I didn't have to stare at that damn thing in Eric's car all the time." <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not it's not great. But... Yeah, it, it's it's a strange album for sure. <laughs> but you know what's funny about it? It's kind of neat about it. Is you know the way. You know, you're a Kiss fan, so you know the styles that they write differently to an extent, Paul and Gene, right? You can tell if it's a Paul song or a Gene song or an A song, right? You know, this this kind of furthers that, you know, 
stylistically the difference between what Steve was writing or where he wanted to go versus where Carrie was writing and where he wanted to go. Right. Um, it sort of underscores that, which I think is, I think it's cool. Right. Like yeah. I, you know, and I, and I really like, you know, maybe I'm getting older, I'm nostalgic or whatever, but you know, I really like the fact that we have these two snapshots of where they were at this point in time. Right. You know, even if, you know, even if there was a mountain cocaine or whatever, right. Or <laughs> it was the rest or what have you. Right. You know, I love it. You know, like, there's, I was on an, another podcast, um, which I won't name, but, you know, they were kind of shitting on Eddie Van Halen singing, uh, what is it, Josephine, uh, Josephina? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no, it's not. It's, just, it's um, what's the song he sings on Van Halen 3? Uh, I've never actually heard that album, but I know there's a song he takes the lead vocal on. How many, how many say I, how many say I, Eddie sings, Edward sings that, right? And uh, I mean, I, my perspective is, man, I am so glad that I have a song that Eddie Van Halen sang lead on. Doesn't have to be the greatest song in the world, but I love it. You know what I mean? Just because it's Eddie singing on a song. What a gift. You know, it's not Panama or what have you, but what a gift. So, you know, Schemer Dreamer is not Glossolalia for me or Point of No Return, but what a gift to have this, right? This is where he right. was at this point in time. And, you know, I, I cherish it for that. Right. There's always those musical, like, you know, what could have been, you know, like, like, you know, you wonder if someone had made this type of move at, their, at that point in their career, like, you know, someone maybe was working on, like, I, I had an example, but I can't think of it right now. Maybe someone was, uh, Lindsey Buckingham. Lindsey Buckingham was working on a solo album before uh, yep. Tango, Tango in the Night. And mm -hmm. uh, that ended up scrapping that and, you know, making Tango in the Night. And you wonder what that could have been. Um, I'm glad we have Tango in the Night, but, you know, mm -hmm. that it, it's always cool to have those little oddities in the catalog. Yep. I know you're a big fan of How My Soul Cries Out for You, right? So imagine... Oh, yeah. Imagine if he'd, he'd have hung on that from Monolith and put it on this, right? Oh. <laughs> I, you know, I I probably prefer the Kansas version because it's got the Phil drum break and all that stuff. But, you know, what if? That'd be interesting. That would be fascinating, yeah. And, you know, let's let's take a moment to touch on his lyrical uh, slant because it's definitely going to become more and more apparent as we move forward. It's a lot darker than Carrie's. It's a lot seedier at times. I mean, he does have these moments where he kind of writes gentler things like uh just how it feels i think is the one where he you know mentions grandma's making my favorite food or something like that like you know he does have these moments like or was it what's the last song on freaks of nature like warm and uh, safe well, yeah safe and peaceful and warm peaceful and warm yeah like that, that's a really sweet song but he also writes these incredibly like dark or like cd songs which i've always just kind of found fascinating it's an interesting kind of balance he has and he's really, really, he's one of my favorite writers. Um, we've, and we'll talk about it again here. We talked about it before of writing from that perspective in life. And God damn, it feels real. Like, you know, I, I always go back to Lonely Street, um, you know, in the live version, it's on the whiskey, you know, where he murders a man in jail. <laughs> and, you know, man, to write those words and to sing them the way he sings them, Man, he's like an actor, or maybe he murdered a guy in jail. I don't know, right? <laughs> but you know, he he really embodies the the lyrics, you know, and he can tell a story, turn a phrase, you know. One of my favorites at that. You know, a killer man and a pain and a can with 20 years on the chain. 
there's a description I gave to Meatloaf once, and I would give to Steve Walsh as well. He's good at getting inside the skin of a song and yeah. walking around in it. You be- you believe what he's saying, yeah. Which makes a lot of songs that we're going to talk about in a couple albums really chilling. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's evocative. You know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Schemer Dreamer, fascinating little footnote in Kansas history. Um, and one that um, I think it's forgotten and also not, from what I've read online, not beloved. Um, I read a lot of uh, post-80s uh, reviews on this and they were not kind to this album, which I thought was interesting because I don't think it's, it's not terrible. It's not my favorite, but it's, in, like we said, it's fascinating. It's a snapshot of where he was and you've got this weird cover art that you can ogle at as well (laughs) (laughs) right also like tell me this could be a james bond poster couldn't it i mean this is just like with the guns and everything Uh, i I keep expecting to see like 007 you know live (laughs) live to die another day (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean it's you know it's uh it's a guy trying way too hard to put his machismo out there Yeah, yeah definitely but the album came out, didn't really do much. And uh, after the Audio Visions tour, uh, I believe Steve started to work on uh, Vinyl Confessions for a little bit and then eventually was out of the band. Uh, from what from my interview with John Alfonte, he was not pleased with the lyrical direction. Um, and then he went and he put together a new band, The Incredible Melodic Streets, uh, featuring Mike Slammer on guitar from City Kid. Uh, Billy Greer on bass, who would go on to join Kansas, and Tim Gehert. Did I say that right? Tim Gert? I'm not sure. Yeah, Gert. Tim Gert on drums. Uh, and they released in October 1983, Streets First. debut at charlie charlie daniels volunteer jam as well i wanted to say that because charlie daniels fan um produced by neil kernan uh who ironically produced drastic measures by kansas uh i think that's kind of a funny connection there uh this is just straight early 80s like melodic rock a la survivor lover boy journey and i freaking love this record steve is in fine voice he was made to make this type of music it's just so perfect uh if love should go is great move on uh everything is changing all kinds of great stuff fire is good uh my favorite though is the absolutely dark twisted heavy hitting lonely woman's cry Hell's 
Steve gives a good vocal performance and just some of the lines in that song just just cut about like police profiling and stuff like that it's a really it's a song ahead of its time it's really good yeah it's great and I again I remember when this was released um my brother had it on vinyl you know so I would listen to my brother's copy uh there were I had Billy Greer on my podcast so you know your John Elefante interview is awesome but I you know I did I did ask Billy about how he hooked up with Steve and some streets questions and things like that. So, you know, check out podsodcast.com and go look up Billy Greer. Cause you know, he kind of, he probably even pronounces Tim's last name correctly, honestly. <laughs> um, but uh, man, I love this record. You're, you're spot on. This is one of those records that I think, you know, is somewhat, you know, criminally overlooked. Like at the time, like these songs are every bit as good as a Jesse's girl or, you know, whatever, AOR from that era that you know landed on the charge and has stuck with us right um you know the ones I mean there's again what is there there's nine songs in here but you know if love should go move on you know so far away like these are uber catchy songs you know they're they're you know three minutes or thereabouts they're tight yeah. you know it's, you know the production is really clean you know all the instruments are you know uh pushed up uh, so you hear them, they're distinct. Not, there's, it never sort of flattens out and gets dull or whatever. There's high energy here. Um, I, you know, this is one of those records, again, I think, you know, um, I bet a lot of AOR fans that go back and discover this find it as a gem, right? Okay. Uh, but, you know, it's it's funny because I don't, I don't think it had much traction. I don't know if you had any any details on it, but you know, there was a video for everything is changing. It's on YouTube. It's embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I don't think they had any real success with it. Um, maybe it's again, I could be projecting all of this, but, you know, if Steve isn't out there wanting to do interviews and this is, you know, it's streets, but it's Steve Walsh's band. Everyone knew that. Right. right. So if, he, if he's not out there selling it, then nobody's out there selling it. Right. So. Right. You know, I wonder how much of a detriment that is. And we'll talk about on the later records, like he, it wasn't like he was out there, you know, doing a hundred podcasts or interviews or anything like that. Right. So, you know, I suspect it was the same at this time. Um, that Charlie Daniels clip is online, by the way, that yep. debut performance. 
but yeah, man, I, I love this record, you know, it, and it never, it still sounds fresh. The production, like I said, is real clean. It still sounds fresh. And I was, <laughs> I was driving, um, doing quote research for this episode, right. <laughs> My girlfriend over the last weekend, you know, and she's had to listen to Glossolalia far too many times for her to, <laughs> hear. But, you know, I was putting on these songs and she was, she could hum them after every time, just you heard it once. And then she knew the melody to, you know, so close, so far away, or, you know, even crimes and mind stuff, which we'll talk about, but yeah, this, I think streets first and crimes of mind, both are fantastic, solid, tight records. And I should also say cold hearted woman has Billy Greer on, on lead vocals. Oh, is that, is that him? I thought it sounded a little different. That's interesting. Yeah. And they did the King biscuit flower hour at the time. And Billy Greer sings on the live version as well. That's a CD I'm trying to hunt down right now, actually. Yeah, Th this is fantastic. Yeah, one other thing that I'll mention, and I'm not trying to get all my facts out here on the first record, so I want anything to say on Crimes of Mind, but yeah. uh, Mike, Mike Slamer is the guy, is the guitar player. Uh, and he went on to, um, one of the things that he's kind of known for is, I guess he was maybe friends with... Bo Hill. Bo Hill. Yeah, and he sort of taught, quote, taught the Warrant guys, if not played on uh, Dirty Rotten, Filthy Stinking Rich, right? Yep. Um, and then he went on, again, Billy told me this in that interview, he went on to have success doing a lot of music for American Idol. Like he's, oh. he's had a bigger career, you know, post that era than, than any of them, right? Um, I think it was American Idol or The Void, one of those shows that he's sort of the musical director or what have you. It's, it does all the interstitials. I forget what it was, but. Hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. I, I, I kind of wonder what happened to him because he'll, he'll pop up again and then disappear uh, yeah. later in, later in this uh, episode. But yeah, I was going to bring up that Warren point. I thought that was fascinating. He played on, allegedly he played on cherry pie too, from what I read online. Mm, so that, that's interesting. And uh, also the kicks album, blow my fuse. Okay. So yeah, Bo Hill definitely got some use out of him for sure. Yeah, absolutely fantastic album. And the tour they did for this, they opened for Loverboy on the Get It Up tour. Um, but not the whole tour. I, I ended up, my dad saw that tour and I was like, Did you see a band called Streets? And he's like, No, there was no opening act that night. I'm like, Oh uh, okay. so man. missed out on that one. But yeah, great record. One thing we forgot to do for Schemer Dreamer that we'll do for this one is picks. Um my pick is going to be Lonely Woman's Cry. I'll play it, play a clip of that. What about yours? From Streets First? Yeah. Oh, um, you know what's funny? Like it's, for me, it's always either uh, If Love Should Go or Everything Is Changing because they start off the sides, right? But Everything Is Changing has the dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and it's like the, the, the tone of the synth in the beginning is just slightly embarrassing.
so every time I play that for something, I'm like, oh no, no, hang on for the first five seconds until the until the slammer guitar comes in. So having said all of that, I'm gonna go with the love should go because it's tight as f. Nice, I love that song. Uh, yeah, I, I actually love the key sound on this album and the next one. Like I, I'm I'm a sucker for that stuff. So <laughs> yeah, not 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 bad at all to me. I love my favorite key sound. I think is on uh, move on that kind of trippy roop, roop sound he's doing. So cool. There's a moment in Move On, like if you're a super duper Kansas fan, like there's this and you're a trained vocalist. So forgive me, I'm going to bastardize the explanation of this. Oh, go for it. He, he does it in uh, House on House on Fire on Spirit of Things, where he gets to like the upper part of his voice and it, it sounds like he's straining. There's a bit in towards the end of Move On where he does the same, where his voice kind of lilts or like arcs up. And it feels like just a bit uncomfortable out of his range. And it, it's like a tiny bit squeaky, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, every time I, I try to hit that note, and of course I can't do it. was just something like as he aged he kind of that his voice just kind of started doing that or if that was just him like i'm just gonna push myself a little bit past my breaking point because i can which can sometimes be fun like you know a little bit of audio verte it's not perfect but it sounds cool and yeah. he does that a few times to great effect in a couple records i think yeah and by way of singers you know i would put this as one of his top performances record wise oh absolutely you know like you know you mentioned lover boy and survivor whatever you know this is i think steve at maybe one of his vocal bests you know my my opinion as a vocalist is that most vocalists hit their peak around like their mid-30s early 40s mm. i'm not sure how old steve was here but he he had to be creeping up on that era like i think you get to a certain point where like you've learned a lot but you're still just young enough to sing crazy high or like do the crazy vocal acrobatics. And yeah. that's when I think most vocalists like kind of reach their peak. Like the early stuff is really cool as always, but there's something magic about that period. I find in most bands catalogs, if there's a live record in that time frame, it always has a little extra. That's great. In my opinion. That's a good observation. Yeah. Yeah. And he had, you know, hadn't, he also hadn't been smoking cigarettes for 20 years. So he still had the purity in his voice here. Yeah, yeah, he's someone like the the transformation of his voice as we go through this is absolutely fascinating 
and heartbreaking, but at the same time, impressive to me because I was I actually watched footage from the final Kansas show he did, uh, getting ready for this, just because I was like, I wonder if any exists, and it does. And yeah, he didn't sound the same, but he never sounded like the re- like you've seen have you seen those recent bon jovi videos where he just sounds yeah yeah, yeah. not good Damn. yeah he, he steve is still trying and he's finding grace notes where he can like still sound really good or he'll save himself for like a really big moment and then just punch through like at the end of carry on my wayward son he just kind of hits that last note just like bam like yeah. so to me he's someone that kind of like while he has his vocal struggles he's perfect example of figuring out how to use your voice and persevere with it so yeah couldn't agree more couldn't agree more yeah yeah Yeah, i'd like uh you know (laughs) not to go too far down that detour but you know that device voice drum is my favorite kansas uh live recording and he's definitely you know uh adapting with a more mature voice right he's you know i'm not gonna say he's taking shortcuts but he's he's smarter in how he's using it and you know, he can't hit that pure note at the end of the solo in Dust in the Wind or what have you, right? But yep. he, he figures out a way, you know, to deliver that emotion. Yep, and that's all that matters, the passion. You have come to move me Take me from my ancient home Land of my father's eye Streets first. Check it out. If you're a Kansas fan that hasn't heard that, if you're on the progier side, you might be a little disappointed, but if you love melodic rock, I guarantee you, you're going to have a good time. So that record was released and honestly didn't do too, too much. They toured it pretty hard. There was a King Biscuit show, but nothing really uh, took off, unfortunately. So the label said, okay, we're going to put you with one of our hottest producers right now. He just came off doing Rats Out of the Cellar, Bo Hill. Released March 1985, Crimes of the Mind.
lineup this time. Uh, to me, it's a pretty solid follow-up to the first album. Uh, but I know it wasn't an easy one to make either. According to the this Rock Candy Records reissue, there's like really good liner notes here. Steve was having some vocal issues, like he caught laryngitis and couldn't redo some of the vocals. So Bo had to work with some scratch tracks, which maybe weren't as perfect. It just kind of seems like, I don't know, it doesn't feel as, I don't know, natural as the first one. Like this one maybe feels a little more uh, like, it's that whole thing you have a you have a lifetime to write your first record a couple months to write your second mm. so but there are some good stuff there's some good stuff here i like don't look back a lot the nightmare begins it's amazing broken glass again those twinkling keys just awesome desiree made me laugh out loud because i think in spanish he said something about like i got your name number in the bathroom <laughs> yeah yeah El Baño in the song. I, I noticed that this time <laughs> listening to it, I was like, wait, I was like, wait, did he just say that? <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, it, it, it's still a fun album, just maybe not quite as fun as the first one. Still a solid listen. Uh, I'm going to go with my pick is Broken Glass. I look into the mirror to see if I'm all right. Look more like a stranger with every sleepless night. I must be Yeah, you know what? Uh, I would, I would actually encourage people to go pick up Streets first if you've never heard it, right? And if you really like that, like if you're all in, then maybe try Crimes in Mind, right? But I wouldn't start on Crimes in Mind, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I agree with everything that you said right there. Um, just looking at the credits, it's, it looks like there's some external songwriters on this one, uh, yeah. more than more than the first one, um, but. You know, there are some catchy ass songs on here and you you mentioned all of them, but, I, you know, my favorite is probably Hit and Run. You know, it's probably straightforward, simple, but I, I love Hit and Run. Um, there's a, a video for Don't Look Back, which is, uh, again, embarrassing and ridiculous. <laughs> Steve, I'll give you the I'll give you the plot line. You ready? Yeah. Steve wakes up and his his girlfriend has been murdered in bed next to him. So <laughs> he. He, he goes on the run and, you know, he calls up his dear friend, Billy Greer, to, you know, go on the run with him. And there's like shots of them riding in a car against <laughs> a clear stationary backdrop and stuff like that. Right. 
Um, and Billy told the story about the car they had and the fun they were having and whatever. Um, and the police are chasing him. I think the other two band members of the police, right. Um, dressed in police uniforms, you know, and they're always just a step behind Steve Walsh is evading the law. Cause he is, you know, accused of waking up next to his, you know, murdered girlfriend or whatever. Um, and then we find out at the end, the twist spoiler alert, you know, um, it's his good friend. Billy Greer was the murderer. Killed his <laughs> uh, so I, in that interview, I asked Billy Greer, you know, about him being the murderer and he's laughing. It's like, he was pretty embarrassed by it, but uh, it's, it's a fun video to watch. It's ridiculous. It's of the time, you know, I love eighties videos so much. I have to see if I can find that one on YouTube. Yeah. That just sounds wonderful. Yeah. Don't look back. And his vocals there are awesome. You know, again, oh yeah, you know, it's it's slightly less energy than the first one for me. You know, but maybe it's maybe it's a freshness or something. But you know, Crimes of Mind is a solid record. Like you said, there's some great songs on here. Nightmare Begins. You know, he's uh, he's doing that striving thing with his voice, which is great. Um, yeah. yeah, I wonder. I wonder. Um, if there was a push, you know, to get hits, right? So this is the time where, you know, you said maybe this is what he wanted to write differently from Kansas from a prog perspective. It gets progier going on. But I wonder if at this point in time, you know, if it wasn't if it wasn't good business to have hits and if it wasn't encouraged, you know, to to explore that side of him, right? So, you know, if if you'd have listened to Monolith in 1979 and then looked at, you know, Schemer Dreamer. You know, he's not necessarily trying to write hits there, you know, no. yeah. um, you know, so if he had free reign, we're going to get a 17 minute how my soul cries out for you. Right. But that <laughs> he went the exact opposite. He went with a three minute, you know, um, broken glass or whatever. Right. Or three minute, you know, don't look back. You know, it's it's the opposite of what you might expect of a guy coming out of a prog, you know, successful prog group. It's interesting. Maybe, maybe that was part yeah. of the. Maybe that's why I didn't catch on so much. Maybe, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it, it is weird. It's like, it's one of those hindsight 2020 things, but it is fascinating to me. And I would love to know, like, how much push did this get? Really, I did read in the booklet that the music video, MTV wouldn't pick it up because it was, it was deemed too violent. That's the um, look. Yeah. So, Billy, Billy Greer ruined their chances because he had to go and murder Steve's girlfriend. Yeah. Hate when that happens. But yeah, it, it's it's fascinating. It really is. And to kind of know that he came from when you listen to those Kansas albums and then you listen to this, it's like it's a clear difference. It's yeah. a very clear, different like side of the like side of the coin. Like if I had been shown the Streets albums as a kid, I would have really gravitated to those. But I don't know that I would have like picked up on the proggy stuff like I, like I did later in life. So it, it is interesting. But the album, this one did less than the first one. Um, and there wasn't a tour. Uh, they did some shows, but there wasn't a tour. And Steve actually went out and played keyboards with Cheap Trick uh, mm -hmm. before reforming Kansas, which is fascinating to me. Like, like I, I mean, I guess you got to do something to make money, but like that was that is a move that like I would have never guessed. Like I found out about that. Like when I was pre prepping for this, I was like, wow, there was a Cheap Trick tour where Steve Walsh played keyboards. Well, that's insane. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, they couldn't they they couldn't get arrested at that point in time, I think is I heard one of them say at some point maybe yeah. Phil.
happens when your primes are only in the mind. <laughs> right. Yep. Cheeseball joke. But that would after that, that would lead to uh, Kansas reforming. And Steve would stay in Kansas uh, for a good while after that. It'd be a good minute before we got another solo album. But Kansas had a lot of ups and downs. Uh, they had a hit, you know, off of power. And they did it in the spirit of things. And that was basically severely underpromoted and died in the band, kind of. I learned a lot more about the touring years, getting ready for this, and how rough that was on them. Like, mm-hmm. like I kind of knew it wasn't great after In the Spirit of Things, but I had no idea how bad it got. But yeah, that it, it got pretty scary for a while. But eventually, um, we were in the nineties, mid nineties. I got to mention Freaks of Nature because I feel like you can kind of see the seeds of Glossolalia in Freaks of Nature. That record's a little heavier. It's a little darker at times. Uh, and that was also kind of like. I mean, he, he, we had done Power and In the Spirit of Things up to that point, but Steve really stepping up and being the primary writer for Kansas at that point. Like, there were there was one Carrie Lipgren song on that album. Yeah, and he wasn't an active member. They just did it. I You know, maybe that was even a terms about getting the album released, right? Um, Cold Grey Morning was a Carrie song. But yeah, you're a thousand percent right. I, you know, again, when I go to Kansas, I almost go to Freaks of Nature um i i love that record you know we um we've talked about it before and i actually did i did a track by track with david ragsdale about that record so he talked a lot about you know steve's writing and how he would bring the songs in and things like that again if anyone's curious to go check that out consider that you know the way Kerry took the reins you know rightfully so because of his success you know with the Kansas as Steve was probably getting more and more disenfranchised to use your term right you know this was you know now Steve is fully in the driver's seat for freaks of nature you know yep. but, you know I again I kind of consider that and I, you know I want to make that as a statement because I think it plays into some of the stuff that we'll talk about going forward right so at that point in time you know well actually let's talk about it now so that was his that was his chance almost and then you know it did what it did and they toured and probably saw a bump in business or whatever but you know the music industry had changed they're not going to have a number one hit in 1995 you know um, they're a legacy band with new music it is what it is um, but then they do somewhere elsewhere which is you know, now it's all new carry music, right? Yep. And Steve is, Steve is back in the second chair, right? Yeah. Um, which, la- yeah. I was going to say his last con- con- uh, contribution lyrically to Kansas was always never the same. Those three new tracks. Yep. 
Yeah, which I love those, right? Those are great. Oh, so good. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's almost like you could compare. I, I maybe we talked about this before. Compare Freaks of Nature versus somewhere elsewhere. If they had merged those into one true Kansas album versus a Steve and a Carrie album, almost, you know. Right. Yeah, that'd be interesting. That might, that might be a fun episode to do do sometime. Like creating the perfect late career Kansas album. Yeah. I still would take I still would take Freaks of Nature. Oh, totally. I almost never go to somewhere elsewhere. I know. think I've listened to that album once. I should give it another try. Yeah. But yeah. It is a fascinating re- release. And of note, like before we get into the next album, he was recording his his next solo record at the same time as they were making Somewhere to Elsewhere. Yeah. And he was doing it in his own studio. So there was also that degree of separation, which is interesting to me. I wonder if that was just because like he would I don't know if he was more into doing the solo album at the time or if he just had to do the solo album and it was like, okay, I got to work on both of these. So I got to kind of be separate. So, well, it's interesting that you raise that point because it's not like he's super prolific where he's writing an album a week, like Prince or something. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's not a coincidence that he's, he's, you know, uh, demoted, if you will, in Kansas. And then, compelled to write this solo album record it simultaneously you know that can't yeah. be that can't be a coincidence no, not at all yeah but what we got man i'm excited to talk about this one released september 12 2000 on magna carta technically steve's second solo album the wonderful dark twisted horrifying intriguing record that is glossolalia In, 
in a word, this album is a trip. It's a total departure from what we've heard up to this point. It's got elements of prog, industrial, electronica, and some very kind of experimental song structures, like especially in the, the song that the song Kansas, not the band Kansas. And it's a very divisive album, but it's one I know you and I both love. I love Steve's writing. Dark as it may be, it's fascinating. And he, he's giving these songs his all. That title track is such a killer op opener. It moves and it changes and bends in the most unexpected ways. Those, those tempo changes catch you off guard. Uh, serious Wreckage. It's gorgeous, it's sad, and it's twisted. And I love that song. It's got mournful verses, and the chorus is just darkness creeping in. Like a song about, you know, drunk driving and killing a kid. It is crushing, and he brings it to life. You don't understand, so let me be fair. I was driving in my car, and suddenly a child was standing there it was dark on that street but i can still see his face and if i could right now i'd surely take his place so don't tell me it's all Making my head swoon Serious wreckage Brown bag on the midnight moon Serious wreckage Wet, wet, bloody wet One drink to remember One more to forget that serious wreckage And it sounds like his voice is gonna cry rack when he sings it uh and then yeah, that's, that's the one sorry to inter let me just interject okay. that's the one i was saying earlier that i mean how could you write and sing that with that level of you know evocative emotion like did you run over a kid steve like, right, you feels, wonder. like every time i hear it i'm like god i wish i wish i could you know i don't i'm assuming that's not true right I'm yeah gonna, just but the way he pours himself into it and he writes lyrics that are so you know um i could see his face right the yeah. just the wet 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 bloody wet oh my god that's you know yeah. tangible I take, I take flowers to the funeral but i've forgotten how to grieve ah. it's it's insane like oh just i'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it the he two part been, he could have been everything everything that i am not right, right? when he it's, says that it's so heartbreaking yeah, there's that's one of the two moments in the song that just gut me. And the other one is when he says, don't tell me it's all right. Don't tell me it's going to be fine. The very first time, it sounds like he's holding back tears, literally. It's like, it's going to be fine. Yeah. Like, just the way he delivers that, it's like, whoa. Like, like I, I, I don't know. I really would lo lo love to know, like, was this just like a story you read? Or like, where does this come from? It's so intense and musically structured like the music fits everything mm -hmm. like from those like mournful verses to that like just 
woozy, drunk chorus. It's so perfectly put together. Yeah, when he says the line, I can stay sober one more day, it's just one line there, but yeah. it's sung with such optimism, right? The emotion there of, you know, I can do better. I have to do better for this kid, right? Um, just in that one line, the, um, you know, it's the line, fit, you know, so it's not every time that the the lyrical content fits the mood or the dynamics of the song, you know, and, you know, this record, he's absolutely masterful at that. I think, you know, in this song in particular. So good. So, so good. Uh, I want to talk about the song Kansas, which is super dark song lyrically Steve adding distortion to his voice the song almost turns into like a Marilyn Manson thing at the end which is really surprising to hear people of the south will rise again tribal dances twilight plays medicine man sees the future song about native americans um he mentions people in the south wind and it just uh, listening to that song with headphones on is it's it's kind of spooky it's amazing like i want like he's there's one interview for this album that floats around and he said he'd been sitting around on some of these songs for years i wonder how long he'd been sitting on that one because i feel like maybe that could have been a kansas song but then he just took it to the darkest parts of industrial you could take it yeah and just just from a superficial standpoint, again, this is all speculative projection or whatever. But yeah. you know, the fact that they're over there recording the Kansas album with Kerry songs, and he's over here recording a song called Kansas, that can't be just a coincidence, right? Right. You know, yep. are these are these lyrics metaphorical for that band or his, you know, uh, his perspective of what he was feeling? You know, um, is it is the the Native American experience a metaphor for his experience, you know, in this context, right? I, who knows? Right. That, you know, if man, again, like I would love to someone to ask him that question, right? You know, what you know, what unfortunately, I think if you hear interviews with him, he's not gonna, you know, give you a 12-minute a dissertation on what the song was about. He would just be like, Oh yeah, it was just I read an article. You know, you'd probably yeah. guess 
like succinct like that right and yeah <laughs> it, would, it wouldn't be that deep even though it sounds super deep yeah. the, the other thing i take away with i remember there's an interview where he said that his least favorite song is people of the south wind because there shouldn't be a jaunty song about native americans yeah so like mission accomplished steve this song is not jaunty this is this is dark it's funny i remember playing this album while i was cooking once and mara came home from work and this song was just finishing up, is doing that I will take you down thing. And she's yeah. like, she's like, turn that off. Like, 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 you know, I don't like Marilyn Manson. Turn it off. I'm like, th that's not Marilyn Manson, that's Steve Walsh of Kansas. She's like, what? <laughs> like, yeah, that's the guy that sang Dust in the Wind. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah, right? it's insane. Uh, before we get there's one song that we've been alluding to that we're gonna really dive into. There's two more I wanted to mention. Uh I think Mascara Tears is a great ballad, and so is uh nothing i love both of those and then heart attack man what a strange little song that is in the middle of this album it's almost like it reminds me of like the few times i went to i used to live right in hollywood boulevard and i went to the goth club a few times it just reminds me of being in the goth club and all they're playing is like rammstein and like this mm -hmm. like european techno stuff it's really it's really a trippy song to hear coming from steve walsh but it was my guess she was more or less tired of trying, tired of crying for a little tenderness. Inside I was screaming, hey, she's looking at me, what'll she see? Some Jake on one knee? But she was terrifying. You are a siren, a smoke screen with fire eyes, but I can tell. interesting the 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 techno the what you just described the um, industrial side of it i don't know this to be true but i always kind of assume that that was through the filter of trent gardner like that was his you know his flavor that he was bringing to this right because he he produced this with steve so you know not only did he play some instruments or what have you but you know he also shaped the vision you know and this has mike and billy on guitar and bass respectively as well but yeah. you know i i again i i trent garner i think has since passed but you know i'd love to you know get his side of the story what was his you know what was his contribution you know if if it was to take you know the songs that steve wrote and add that what you described those flavors on top of it absolutely perfect right um you know if if Steve needs someone like that to, you know, um, temper him or balance him or focus him or, you know, inspire him to be more sprawling or, you know, uh, go through more changes in his songs, then this guy absolutely nailed it. You know, um, yeah. I don't know that to be true, but, you know, just given, you know, the trajectory of the records, like where Steve is at these various points in times, right. You know, if, that feels like a new flavor and it feels like a flavor that maybe this guy brought. 
I could be wrong, right? Yeah, that's it's it's an interesting thought because Trent Gardner's not on the next album, and there's definitely less of that type of stuff on that album right. when we get right. to it. So, yeah, yep. good yeah, speculation. This, yeah, this is the only one that really has that feel to it. You know, I think Trent, Trent Gardner, now that I'm talking about it, he did another thing for, I think he worked at Magna, or he was a Magna Carta artist in some capacity. And he did another, oh man, it's been years. He did another record like The Measure of a Man or something. It was like the story of Michelangelo or something like that. It was a concept album. And I think Steve was on that as a contributor. It was one of those things where he, you know, uh, Trent had pulled in various artists or whatever, all Magna Carta artists. And I, I think that might be partially what I'm basing that that was his flavor because if I remember correctly, that record is very proggy but has those industrial flavors, you know, in it as well. Um, I can, I'm drawing a blank on the name of that, but um, yeah, the, uh, Virgil Donati also plays drums on this. He's uh, you know one of those prog guys that has been on everything under the sun, Eric Sheridan and yeah. you know a bunch of solo records and whatnot. Yeah. One of those. Billy Greer on bass and Mike Slamer playing that crushing guitar on this album. Yeah. It's kind of good. It's kind of funny to hear him go from streets to this. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, what's funny again, I was listening to this with my girlfriend and we had heard some of the street songs and then we're listening to this and, you know, there's moments in here, you know, despite the smacking the clowns and the glossolalias where he, he still writes like a tight, tight hook. Like that's what love's all about. Or man, there are moments where he breaks out into like a catchy hook, you know, that is an earworm. You hear it once and you, you know, you can hum it for the rest of the day kind of thing. Right. So he still has that ability, right. There's still like those, those seeds that were, you know, planted in streets. Like you'd still hear those little bits in here. Yeah. Are you ready to talk about the epic? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Glossolalia is also an epic. Like Absolutely. That, I mean, good Lord. <laughs> yeah. The epic, you mean Rebecca? Or <laughs> Mas- Mascara Tears? Is that what you want to talk about? We might be laughing, but we're smacking the clowns.
<laughs> I wrote a freaking essay for this thing. Uh, that like the, I say essay, but it's like I just made a lot of notes on this song because for a long time, like ever since you introduced me to this album, we've always you've kind of like you smack on the clowns is kind of like a punchline, and then kind of like what do those lyrics mean? So I spent a long time listening to this song, reading the lyrics, and dissecting them. And I think I've kind of figured it out. At least this is what I think this song means. Can't wait to hear it. So this song, in my mind, in short, it's about the loss of innocence and having to cope with growing up suddenly. And the circus is a metaphor for that. The circus caught on fire. All the children cried. The smoky veils like fairy tales that every parent and their parent lie to the kids. But as the flames licked the sky in my hotel, hometown died a little more. That's the big awakening. The veil of childhood has been lifted and you see your innocence being destroyed and ripped from you. That's that circus. Let's roast some weenies, Jumpy said, but he was just cracking wise. You know, Jumpy is doing what some people do in that situation. He's attempting to cope through humor, but the narrator knows this and he sees right through it. Uh, what will the juggler do? The night is so lonely. She never learned to read or write in school. Uh, most of us are not really prepared for life in the real world. Are any of us really prepared for that? You know, once we have to grow up, some people are so unexposed to the world, they find it hard to cope with. So that's kind of what I see in that line. We might be laughing, but they're smacking the clowns. Uh, that's kind of the whole, you know, metaphor for that. And then a lot of it's just great imagery. You know, the circus caught on fire, the canvas caving in, the big top like an elephant whose bones could not support the skin. That's just great writing. That's all that is. But then in all of the confusion, I felt selfish and bitter. We all have to grow up, but why here? Why now? We're not ready, and some of us resent it. That's kind of what's going on there. Um, and it kind of reaches a fever pitch when you get to that bridge, you could call it, after the second chorus, uh, where, he, where he says, uh, maybe the old cliche isn't far from true. Maybe there's a silver lining. And I love that part because his voice breaks again. A like, silver lining? Right, like he's 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 kind of coming to the realization that if I'm going to survive this harsh world, I have to keep some of my wonder. I have to keep some of my belief in the beautiful things. This maybe the circus lives on inside us is is the lyric, and that's kind of where he kind of like learns to cope. He learns to grow up. Uh, that's all the ultimate point of you can either fight and try and find the beauty and the madness, or become apathetic. And our narrator chose to keep the faith. And then the last one, few notes I have is I went to Clown College and Jumby went to Nam. He wrote me a letter before he got wasted. He caught that napalm bomb. Now I put on my white face and sing my silly song, but the good times have come and gone. Even though the narrator is choosing to look on the bright side, he doesn't make it out totally unscarred. He lost a friend in Jumby and it haunts him a little still. He's pushing forward, but he carries that little scar. Uh, sometimes I remember that town. I see, I still see it burning before they built that booze bottle parking lot. You know, things that used to seem magical and wonderful when we were a kid lose their luster, or maybe they get torn asunder for something or deemed important, like a park, parking lot. Like, I think our narrator sometimes wonders if all of this only existed in his head, but the circus lives on inside. So the song is growing up. That's what I think it is. This big, epic angry metal song is just a big metaphor for growing up. That's how I see it.
isn't far from the truth. Maybe there's a silver lining. Maybe the old cliche isn't far from true. Maybe there's a, a silver lining. Maybe. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you for an edit just of your explanation of that song, and I'm gonna listen to that over and over again. <laughs> yeah, I, I spent a lot of time like just taking notes, listening to it over and over again. Yeah, it's, it's that was perfect. That was absolutely perfect. I have I have nothing to add to that. To be honest, that was absolutely fantastic. I do have to ask you because I've read again. I read online reviews for this one, and it seems a lot of Kansas fans are kind of split down the middle on this one. What was the reaction like at the time when this came out, like among like Kansas fans? Like what, like, was it really kind of a shock? Cause I know a lot of people say like Steve's voice was like kind of jarring to them on this album. Yeah. But, I, honestly, I don't have an answer for that. Cause I don't know. I would not have been necessarily active in whatever community at that time. Um, I did. I was interesting when I talked to Ragsdale, I asked him if he had listened to Gloss and he had said, no, I was like, yeah. are you are you kidding me? You know, this is a masterpiece. What are you, are you nuts? Um, I may have asked Billy that too, actually. And he may have maybe said no. Really? Uh, he plays yeah. on the album. I know. But um, yeah, I, it's funny because that, you know, my dad and I, my dad, I grew up on Kansas. He's my other Kansas, one of my Kansas friends. Right. And this was one that he gravitated, gravitated towards as well. So that was an ongoing joke between him and I, you know, smacking the, what the hell, what's that? You know, um, but you know, honestly, I never stopped to think about it. I'm glad you did, but uh, you know, I man, it's just an absolute masterpiece. It and really there, is. The, the way you know, you broke out some of the lines, you know, again, his voice breaks, like you said, silver lining, like it's you know, there's this weeping to you know, you know, like there's like you're telling yourself that to convince yourself, right? Like he's so right. desperate to believe that as true. Right. Um, I mean, both those lines, maybe there's a silver line and maybe the circus lives on inside us. Right. He's not saying it does. He's kind of saying, like, I hope it does. Right. right. Or he's saying maybe it does. But his his delivery says, I hope it does kind of thing. Right. That innocence that you described. Um, and there's, you know, you broke down the lines about, you know, jumpy and nom. And he said, um, I put on my wave face and I sing my silly song like he's. He's seeing how ridiculous he is in comparison to the significance of his friend who, you know, lost his life pointlessly, you know, yeah. for something else, right? Um, just and it's just in the one word, you know, I put on my white face and I sing my silly song. Like if the word silly weren't in there, it'd be a different message almost, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. It's an amazing album. And I encourage Kansas fans, not Kansas fans, I encourage everybody to listen to this thing. It is it just rewards you with each lesson. I think, I think it like you find something new in it each time. And the way his vocals are produced is it, it's the way to get that voice at that point in time, the sound that's best, right? Like he's, 
he's doing what he can with his voice and he's using it so adeptly, but the way it's produced, like you said, the end of the one song where I will take you down. Right. At first it sounds crazy, but then you're like, well, yeah, what else could that have been right there? Right. Like it's absolutely masterful, you know, and probably the first listen, you're going to be turned off. It's like, it's like discovering coffee or beer. The more you stick with it, the more you're going to like it. Right. <laughs> and this definitely has a payoff, you know, uh, the other thing I'll say is this album cover is even worse than Schemer Dreamer. <laughs> what is this? What is going on here? However, I think Glossolalia means tongue, doesn't it? it think... That it does, yeah. So I, you know, I would say, unlike Schemer Dreamer, do not let this album cover deter you, right? Um, you know, it's ridiculous looking, but it's going to be a thousand times rewarding. Right. Right. The, the the sounds that are going to come out of that album are just going to floor you. Yeah. And you have no idea. It's like a weird twisted monkey with two cactuses growing out of his chest. Right. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know. Yeah, that's a weird one. That's, there isn't that, even there isn't even a mountain of cocaine to blame. Behind right. <laughs> right. Just, just cacti. Just cacti. Yeah. Another fun little fact uh, just in the credits is. Uh, David Mannion plays on this, and he was, what, a long-time keyboard tech for Kansas. He eventually filled in for like a year or two. He was an official member, David Mannion. Interesting. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. Um, one last thing on Smack of the Clowns. I think if Steve had done a solo tour to support this, that's your opening number. Imagine <laughs> the curtain dropping and that <laughs> as that song really kicks in. Like That would just be so cool. You know, what's, you know what else is great about this record is the sequencing. Oh, yeah. There, there's no throwaway track on here. You know, like you might not remember it by name, Rebecca or said Rebecca, right? You yeah. might not just reading the name, you go, oh, Rebecca, right? But as you're listening to it, everyone is great. Like there's not a throwaway track. You know, there's, I got no gripes about this album whatsoever. Yeah, it's damn perfect. Like 10 out of 10 easily phenomenal album do we get to pick a song uh, oh yeah yeah we got to pick a song we got to pick songs from this one uh i'm gonna go with uh are we playing two (laughs) i mean i I probably played clips of a lot of these already but uh yeah so i'm gonna go with for my pick i'm gonna do serious wreckage
Well, then I got to go smacking the clowns unless you're going to play it. I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I, I am going to play smacking the clowns. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. Phenomenal album. I, I hope I get a chance to dissect this thing further someday. Fantastic stuff. But that album comes out to mixed reception. I've read some reviews from the time. I've read some current reviews and they're all very, very mixed. A lot of people can't get over his voice, but I kind of like it. It's like I said, he found a way to persevere with his voice. It had definitely been uh, abused a bit at that point, but it, it was still there. It was still there, I think. So let's fast forward a couple years to 2005. Uh, released June 28, 2005 on 33rd Street Records, Steve Walsh's Shadow Man. appearance on this one which is kind of cool and joel kosh of collective soul playing guitar and bass also mm -hmm. cool uh this one is similar to glossolalia but it never gets quite as dark as glossolalia does uh, uh i feel like this one kind of is a little closer to the kansas sound in in some places but it does have those like heavy crushing guitars um i, w I was not as familiar with this one i had only heard this one a few times getting ready for this one so it was kind of almost a new record to me uh, but I liked a lot of it. I liked Rise quite a bit. I think Keep on Knocking is a fun song. Hell is Full of Heroes, Shadow Man. Uh, and to me, the most Kansas sounding song on the album, other than the ones Dave, Dave Ragsdale played on, The River.
song. I think that song is gorgeous. Um, it's solid and it's a fascinating follow up to Glossolalia, but it's not quite as strong as the one that follows it. The one that fo- sorry, the one before it. It's quite a it's quite an album, but when you following up a masterpiece like Glossolalia, it's big shoes to fill. What do you think of Shadow Man? I agree with every word you said right there. I I bought this on its release. Um, having loved Glossolalia, like we said, and it just um, it just did not resonate in the same way, right? And it it just fell out of my listens. You know, I remember listening to it quite a bit when it was released, and never really went back to it. Honestly, um, you know, I revisited it, you know, just to refresh my memory for this episode here. And you know, they're good songs. I don't have any complaints. You know, I I honestly think it, maybe it supports that point I made about Trent Gardner, right, being the ingredient, you know, that would temper him because this doesn't have that. You know, it doesn't have the sort of vitality that Glossolalia does for me, you know, and I, you know, that might be the why, you know, like you maybe need, you know, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe Fleetwood Mac needs a Ken Calais or whatever it is, right? Whatever these yeah. needs Tem- Templeman or whatever, you know, and, you know, this one just does not have that. No complaints. Again, there's nothing wrong with this. The songs are solid, right? It's still him. It's still that sound, you know, you're, you're right. And then I think it sounds closer to Kansas in terms of, you know, it's not AOR like streets. It's not as experimental as Glossolalia. It's a little bit more straightforward. Um, but, you know, if you love Glossolalia, you'll enjoy this, but I don't think you'll love it nearly as much. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, it's, it's a fascinating one. And does yours have the two bonus tracks? Uh, I'm not even, I don't I think I have a physical copy of this. To be oh, yeah. My, mine is two bonus tracks. One's called uh, Foul Derone. Sure, if it's saying that right, and then one called "Dark Day." Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, that's an interesting thing. You got, I get, I guess those songs were from like an online single Steve put out, um, and later got rolled onto this edition of the album. So, interesting little factoid there. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I think you made a good point. It's, I never thought about that, but they did always. Steve always kind of had, uh, in some of these records, kind of like a sounding board. Maybe you know he had that in Trent Gardner. He had that in, uh. Bo Hill probably. And uh, who was the one that did the first Streets album? Neil Kernan. Neil Kernan, yeah. So he, he always kind of had someone to kind of like, you know, bounce stuff off of him, maybe like point him in the direction he thinks he should go in. So yeah, that's that's a good point. I, I, I find that I I can't disagree with you there. It's but yeah, fun listen, definitely a fun listen, and definitely one I want to spend more time with. Um so before we get to the last one, it's kind of interesting to note that uh after this, Steve goes really cold on new music for a while in fact the other guys in kansas when they want to do new music while he's still in the band they had to form a whole separate band in native window which is insane insane to me uh that native window would open up for kansas so you kind of got like two shows of kansas music which is fascinating but yeah they kind of he kind of moves into the wild after this i think he kind of thought he was done writing at least that's the vibe i got from like some of the interviews I've read uh, that he thought he was done writing uh, before the next one. Yeah, I remember him specifically saying um, he was done writing new music for Kansas, right? Like I remember the for Kansas was part of it, right? And, you know, again, it's speculative on my part. I'm probably not alone. I would think a lot of Kansas fans might think this, but, you know, he probably was disenfranchised. Again, going back to your word, right? Like, you know, you're with this band, the other guys are hungry to make new music. 
and then you go over there and record a solo album like what's you know what's my name skip right like why why are, i i never i never quite you know heard a satisfactory answer for that not that it needs to satisfy me but you know that would be one of those questions like you know where where were you right like maybe you know freaks of nature was his uh swing at the play for a home run and didn't hit it right um so then at that point forward basically he just wrote what he wanted to write when he wanted to and did it on his own right even even defiantly against you know those guys wanting to do new music so badly that they did it on their own without him while on tour with them like you said you know they would you know it'd be the four of them or five of them i'm doing my math right um you know opening for the five of them plus steve right the only difference would be steve would be on stage they're native without them they're kansas with them right um yeah that's that's and you know can't one thing about kansas is um you know even in the interviews you see the miracles out of nowhere documentary or mine or any other interviews that you hear with these guys they're not really mudslingers, you know, so they, no. you know, they're, they're honest, they're not deceitful, but they're not, you know, they're not going to tell you the, the warts part, you know what I mean? Um, I mean, they might tell you like Rich Williams will tell you how they didn't like touring on the buses for those years or whatever. Right. So they're not going to just paint you the rosy glamour, glamorous picture, but they're not going to, you know, talk ill of their bandmates. Right. Um, you know, they might abstractly say, you know, uh, there were outside forces, meaning drugs or whatever, you know, they'll talk about things like that in a very general term. But, you know, I don't think anyone in Kansas is ever going to write like a tell all book where they, you know, get into the seedy stuff of it. Right. And, you know, this, this to me is a really interesting thing because, you know, looking at these last two, three records of his, um, he still had music, he, you know, as just a creative force that he needed to get out. Right. And, you know, those guys wanted to get out in music as well. Right. But didn't necessarily have that um, songwriting uh, bug like he did, you know? So it's interesting that they, they just couldn't be in sync on that. Um, and yet, you know, friends from childhood touring together, you know, he brought Billy into the band, all that stuff. Right. You know, I don't think they're, you know, I can't imagine a scenario where they were fighting about it. You know, it's probably like, it's probably like one of those old marriages. It gets to be like a cold war where they, you know, yeah passive aggressive or what i don't know right i man i would you know i simultaneously would love to know that and respect them and don't need to know that right yeah it's always one of those fascinating things like you, you know the drama of sun bands you know the drama of Fleetwood mac you know the drama of sticks but you don't really know the drama of kansas and even i watched a pretty recent interview with rich williams that he gave i think this year talking about this upcoming 50th anniversary tour and they asked him about Steve and he was, you know, nothing but nice things to say about the guy. In fact, to the point where it almost sounded like he missed him. Yeah. So, yeah, it, if, if there is something there, we'll probably never know about it. And they're probably just, they know whatever differences they have, you know, they're still friends and they still, they still care about each other. So, and he, only, and he only left, he left when he was ready to leave. Right. And I, right. you know, I'm not trying to plug my podcast, but I, I talked to Rich about that. I talked to Ronnie Platt about that and Billy, right? I think I interviewed Billy just after that, or maybe it was Ronnie. Um, but uh, yeah, none of them had anything negative to say about him. It wasn't like they urged him to leave or wanted him to leave. In fact, you know, they were somewhat heartbroken by him leaving because it's, you know, 
not only is it a signifier that you're getting older and da da da, right? But you know, you know, he wasn't necessarily capable like when he was in his twenties or thirties. You know, well, you're losing your friend. It's this mixed bag of emotions, right? And then suddenly have this new guy, Ronnie Platt, and they can do material they hadn't done in years and they could record new music of their own that they hadn't, you know, so it's, it's like a blessing and a curse. Right. But, you know, they were, they were pretty emotional about it, you know, but it was also somewhat of a, you know, it was a business decision, but they didn't, you know, from all accounts that I saw, it wasn't like they asked him to leave or said, you know, all right, you know, it's, uh, this isn't working out anymore. You know, he left when he wanted to retire, you know, and that's, yeah. What a, what a, you know, what a, from both sides of that equation, from, you know, Phil and Rich and Billy, right, um, to Steve, to what a demonstration of mutual respect, you know? Absolutely. And for the most part, he's been done touring too. He did one, like, he did one run on the Rock Meets Classic thing I saw online. He did that, I want to say in like 2017, 2018, maybe. He did that run. Right, but that's really been it. He made and he did like one little one-off performance at like a John Payne's Asia show where he showed up and sang a few songs. But yeah, yeah, he he's pretty much been retired. But yeah. in that time, we did get in 2017. Uh, I guess shortly before that, the label that this next album was on contacted him and said, "Hey, would you be interested in doing a solo record?" Um, I found a lot of information about this album last night. I didn't expect to find, and he basically said said he wasn't sure but they sent him an instrumental and he heard the instrumental and he liked it so much he started writing lyrics to it so released in 2017 three years after his retirement from kansas on the escape music label steve walsh's black butterfly dear colinda In the desert Dear Colinda Are you sure You can make it Make it to Valhalla But you're searching for a Neverland Where dreamy light replaces All the throbbing collaborative solo album between him and the guitarist tommy deander um this is straight up aor this is very much in the vein of streets or journey um i'm fascinated by this album because to me it seems kind of left field for steve in that i wouldn't expect him to go back to aor and i wouldn't expect him to make an album this late in his career i kind of thought he'd be done so i remember when i discovered this one and i discovered that it came out after he left kansas i was really intrigued um 
Jerome Iza offers some vocal support on the album and does some high notes with him to kind of beef it up. But uh, even though his voice can be rough at times, I really dig this album. Uh, maybe that's just because of when I discovered it. I was like a Kansas mania at that time. But this thing gets a lot of spins out of me pretty regularly. I like Born in Fire. I think that's a great opener. Um, it reminds me of those AOR Kansas songs. It kind of reminds me of stuff like Play the Game Tonight and Fight Fire with Fire, which he wasn't a part of, but it's right. got that sound. Uh, Grace of Nature is this pretty little ballad with twinkling keys. Dear Kalinda is this kind of cool, dramatic ballad. Again, not something I would expect someone from Steve, from Steve, but it really works. And Nothing for Nothing, that's a really interesting song. It's got his daughter singing with him on it, Olivia. Um, and my favorite track, Billy Carbone is Dead, which I learned uh, the story of that song. They finally, after wondering for a long time who Billy Carbone is, because I'd seen him thanked in the liner notes of a couple Kansas albums. So I wondered who this guy was. Um, and I found a little track-by-track uh, -track interview with Steve Walsh last night. And Billy Carbone was uh, his uh, vocal guy, like on tour, like he ran his vocal PA and like did some stuff for Steve, like got things he needed. And uh, he ended up dying of drink and drug in one of the, like the crew vehicles. Mm. And I guess kind of Steve kind of felt guilty about it. But like he didn't really appreciate him while he was alive or could have appreciated him more. So he wrote a song about apathy. That's what Billy Gar So Bill he wrote the song and kind of used him as a, you know, the metaphor for apathy. Steve sounds really different, but yeah, I dig Black Butterfly. What do you think? This uh, this one never grabbed me, to be completely honest. It feels like, you know, I don't know if this is true, but you said you read some notes on it. It feels like Tommy Denander basically made a record and Steve recorded the vocals and wrote the lyrics, maybe contributed something arrangement-wise. But, it, you know, it doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't grab me as a Steve record. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, I, I know what you mean. The The production, I will say, the production is very, it's that twinkly, shiny AOR that's just the cleanest thing. Like, there's no, there's no rawness to this album. There's no danger. Like, there's no, there's not even really a lot of darkness. There's some dark, darker songs like Tanglewood Tree, but right. like, it none of it has that kind of like Steve Walsh 
edge as much as I enjoy it. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Like it feels like, you know, it feels like one of those records that frontiers puts this guy with that guy together. Yeah. And you know, the, the magic just isn't, it just doesn't come together for me. Right. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. That's, that's a good way to look at, look at it. And that's probably how it was done too. I get the feeling like he, he was mailed tracks and, you know, email tracks and he, he sang on them and he sent them back and they got mixed. And that's about what we got. The, the one moment that I think really has the kind of Steve Walsh touch to it musically is Billy Carbone is dead. I like that song. Cause like, there's almost like that evil carnival music thing at one point in the song again. Right. But there, there's not a lot of that on the album. If you look at the liner notes, it's, you know, he thanks David Mannion for assistance with tracking vocals. Right. So just just that line here again this is speculative you know maybe this is piecemeal where they're sending files back and forth through the email right yeah. uh, if he's recording his vocals separately you know i mean that's not uncommon and that's not necessarily a negative thing but you know my point in raising that is it doesn't it doesn't you get a different immediacy if you're in the room recording with people and collaborating versus sending things back and forth right um, right yeah, especially I mean, if you're just getting something that like here sing on this and do something with that especially yeah it's almost like that factory way of making an album yeah i'm sure you know it probably i'm sure he had as much input as he wanted to have to be honest um so maybe he maybe he wasn't interested i don't know but you know again that's speculative but it just doesn't it's not a go-to i don't think there's anything wrong with it but it doesn't you know it's not Steve left to his own devices to, you know, be uh, roaming freely artistically. You know, it seems like, you know, he's laying a layer of vocals over or lyrics over sort of pre-existing templates almost. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that is probably about what it is, which is, which is, it's kind of sad, but I am at the same time, like we talked about, I'm glad we have this. Um, yeah. This might yeah. be the last Steve Walsh album we get. Uh, I don't know if we, if it will be, but it it very well could be. Yeah, it might be. You know what's going to happen now is like posthumously, I'm going to listen to this like a million times, and then it'll be my favorite record, right? And I'll regret yeah. everything you just said right now, right? It might be that. It might be. I, you know, sometimes you just it hits you at the right time. You know what I mean? So maybe maybe I just need to listen to this more seriously. But every time I put it on, I kind of trail off or find myself you know, tinkering with other things or whatever. It didn't, didn't ever quite hold me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. One day, one day I'll just be listening to shadow man. And all of a sudden I'm going to be like, I get it. I yeah, get exactly, it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I, I totally know what you mean. You know what, but let's go back to it. Like it's, you need the yin to have the yang, right? Like without these to contrast how great glossolalia is. Right. 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 Yeah. Light and dark. It just makes glossolalia look that much more, just absolutely fucking perfect. And triumphant too. Like, especially <laughs> at that point. My favorite thing, I've been podcasting for, I don't know, eight, 10 years, something like that, right? My favorite thing ever. Top three moments. I won't say favorite, just on roll out. Top three moments. Alex wrote an essay about smacking the clowns. That's, <laughs> thank you. That means a lot. That's <laughs> incredible. Wow. That That's high praise. Thank you. <laughs> that's awesome. That's high praise. Yeah. Yeah, no, I had to. Like, I was like, I can't just talk about that song. I have to, like, 
I have all these things I want to say, so I'm just going to get it out. Like, I've, it's funny. I've often, I don't know if this will say, and I've often toyed with the idea of like, I love YouTubers that like do video essays. I've often like wondered, like, could I do that? Like, could I like, like, do I have the patience to edit something like that together? And this was just kind of me putting like that type of thing into an audio medium. <laughs> I'll, I'll I could be, do that. I'll be disappointed if you don't do that for Smacking the Clowns. I expect in three months' time to see <laughs> YouTube Smacking the Clowns reaction and analysis have like split screen with you and you know some B roll of like circuses on fire and whatnot. Vietnam. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll send MP3s to Brad. He can like isolate stuff for me. So I can finally hear what some of those vocal samples are saying that I can't quite make out. That's so great too. All the layers. Right. Oh, there's so much stuff to listen to on those records. That record. Right. Oh, wow. man. Before we forget, what are our picks from Black Butterfly? <laughs> yeah, I might just go with the Born in Fire. I mean, that's a pretty straightforward one, honestly. All right. <laughs> talk about glossolalia a little more even <laughs> like there's just so much there i yeah i yeah i'm, I'm off that a loss for words for that album so cool. <laughs> how does the vinyl sound incredible oh my yeah. god it's amazing I, this is one of those records though that i particularly love listening to in my car yeah if i'm ever falling asleep i put this on at really high volume max right oh and, yeah and i'll be wide awake it's like it's better than drinking 10 five-hour energies listening to glossolalia oh yeah like when, when the guitar comes in on the title track you're gonna be like okay there's no way i'm, I'm going to the dish now have faith in me like that yeah. so good oh my god <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> all right well, yeah well that's that's the uh steve walsh solo discography to kind of uh bring it on home black butterfly is the most recent thing we've got and it's kind of been pretty quiet ever since he made an appearance on a album last year by a group called Lalu uh, mm -hmm. vocally. But I interviewed that guy and he even said that he had that vocal. Uh, he'd been sitting on it since like, I think 2019 maybe. So, Great. so yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a while since we've heard anything from Steve and I don't know that we will hear much from him unless he decides one day I want to do another album or like just do something. I think he's going to kind of keep to himself. Yeah, I mean, he, to his credit, man, he he had 
quite a run. And when he was ready to retire, he retired, you know, and, you know, he, I'm sure he struggled with his voice. You know, it's not just us on this side of the stage that was aware of it through the, you know, the aughts or whatever. Right. So, yeah. you know, he probably is relieved to not have to be fretting about some of that stuff and, you know, be home and sort of enjoy the spoils of his uh, work, you know, and just, you know, live a private life and so forth with his wife and kids and whatever, you know? Yep. Yep. He, he went out, he went out, he stopped when he was ready. And I think it's a fitting ending for him. He gave us a lot of good music, a lot of entertainment records that I'm going to keep listening to for a really long time. Like I'm, I'm, I'm going to love Glossolalia till like, I can't listen to music anymore. Like, right. like until they find, until they finally put me in the ground. Like I'm going to love that record. You know, what's cool too is, um, you know, uh, like Kansas as a kid enriched my life so much. Right. Um, and a lot of artists like that become legacy artists and they don't continue to inspire you as you get older and whatnot. Right. Um, thanks to this record and freaks of nature, actually. Right. You know, just the opposite for Kansas, right. Or Steve particularly. So it's not like I, Oh, Steve Walsh. I remember him and can't, you know, uh, leftover or what have you. Right. Like this is, you know, whatever, 25 years after left overture. Right? right. And it speaks to me just the same, if not more so than left overture at this stage of my life, which is great. He grew with you, which yep. is, it's great when an artist does that. They kind of grow with you. Like some, like and this is not a shot at ACDC or Kiss, but some bands keep doing what they, what they've always done. Some bands keep growing. Steve Walsh kept growing, whether it was in Kansas or in Kansas, he kept growing. Yeah. Yeah, and we grow with them. There was I had Brad Page on one of the pods and sod six packs. It was about um, uh, was it the no. John Hyatt one. John Hyatt, where he has a record called "Bring the Family" from like '87, and Brad said this something that was really resonated with me. You know, when he first heard that "Bring the Family" record, he was a young man. Brad was without a family, so he heard it as like, "Oh, here's this old guy singing about getting a family. How is life changing?" Da da da. And then Brad had a family and he heard the record through that experience. Suddenly it spoke to him in a different way. Right. And then as an older man, he listens back to that record now. Right. Um, as somewhat nostalgic. Right. So the record spoke to him sort of from, you know, as the listener from three different points in time, but the content is the same. Right. But your perspective on it is different over time, which I think is, you know, a testament to really great art. Absolutely. And that's a good way to put it. And it's funny that, that it was that episode because that's an episode I've been meaning to check out because I don't know anything about John Hyatt. So, <laughs> yeah, if you want to check cool. it out. Yeah, Eric, this has been... John, let me tell you one thing about John Hyatt. You probably don't know this. He has a 22-minute song about a, a carnival burning down. It's crazy. For real? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, I, 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 I wouldn't put it past him because the reason I thought that was semi-believable was because he he's talked about in the same circles as like Nick Cave and Tom oh, Waits. So, so it's not unthinkable to me that that guy could have a song that's 20 minutes about a carnival burning down. It, it totally fits. <laughs> like if it is that type of music. Yeah, no, I was just referencing smacking. The <laughs> Fair enough. Imagine how long that would have gone live, by the way, you think maybe there would have been some take, let's take this out. Let's solo a bit. Yeah it becomes this like yes type of prog epic oh man i think it's got to stay as it is it's got to stay 10 minutes yeah i think so 
I will say just perfect as is. I will say I wish that this is the only negative I can think of with that song. I wish it didn't fade out. I wish it had a proper ending. Yeah. I wish it had like like the carnival now uh, Barker kind of coming back or something like that as the music kind of like I don't know derails a bit like I it, it should have a chaotic ending but it just kind of fades out. Maybe there's a version that has like an extra 10 minutes and it just faded out cuz you know the real estate on the record they couldn't afford it. Right, yeah. I mean that's like what how many songs that almost reach the 10 minute mark are there on here? Right. <laughs> there yeah, yeah, there's Kansas, there's Smack on the Clowns and Mascara Tears all kind of either reach or get close to the 10 minute mark. You know what this episode was, Alex? Um, I like popcorn as much as the next guy or, or corn on the cob, but they're basically a conduit to eat salt and butter, right? Yes. This Steve Walker episode was basically a conduit for us to talk about glossolalia. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, I've known that since the beginning. <laughs> cool. uh, Eric, this has been an absolute blast. Uh, I don't know if you got any podcasting stuff going on, but you got anything you want to talk about for Stone Turtle House concerts? Uh, no, I mean, I run a house concert series in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. If anyone's curious, go check out Stone Turtle House Concerts on the Facebook. There's a group you can join it and I will happily add you. Um, I presented some pretty cool folks. I could fit about 30 people. Um, I don't do it for profit. Um, I put out tons of food and uh, it's a good time. It's just a little community builder, if you will, right? For the support musicians that I like to, you know, get people post COVID into rooms together and meeting new people and, you know, that kind of stuff, discovering and appreciating art and the little things, which is usually a cupcake and a song in my case. Right. So, um, you know, I've had, uh, Corey Glover, Danny Vaughn, you know, folks like that, uh, Jim Babjack of the smithereens did his first ever solo show here, which was really cool. Oh, uh, really? Yep. It was his wow. first ever. It was really pretty cool. Um, he was amazing. Uh, I had a five piece Linda Ronset tribute band are coming back. Uh, I had, uh, Jeff Scott Soto, one of your, uh, favorites, I think. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah, with Jason Beeler, uh, Eric Martin was here. Ted Poley. Ted Poley. Ted Poley <laughs> was here and gave one of our attendees a bit of a lap dance and gave us all. <laughs> Ted Poley, he is amazing. He was so delightful. Um, yeah, real cool. Uh, so I have a I have a date potentially coming up with Vicky Peterson of the Bengals. Don't tell oh. me. Oh. Haven't announced, haven't officially locked in a date or announced that yet, so that's an exclusive. Exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been it's been fun. Very cool, and uh, I I love that. Uh, uh, one one of your favorite little tidbits you dropped about it was when you got Jason Beeler. Uh, like he mentioned that he wanted to make sure it wasn't a fun for organ harvesting, so that you put on the rule board no organ harvesting. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. <laughs> that's right. I yeah, I have a house rules. And I'll write, I change them for every show or whatever, but I tend to write, you know, no playing life is a highway, which is you know, <laughs> I think the worst song ever. That's my opinion. Right. right. People do me all the time. But when Danny Vaughn came here, he was, he was kind of just checking out the room and he saw that he's like, and that's a good song. What do you, you know? So now he sort of nags me about how life is a highway is a good song. And I was talking to him the other day and I said, if, if you come back here, he's going to come back here later this year, probably. If you come back here and don't play Life is a Highway, I'm going to be dis. I'm going to hate you, but I'm going to be disappointed if you, if you don't play it. Right? <laughs> so, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks, yes. Red. 
Yeah, I'm glad you're doing it. I, I will definitely make it out there for one of them. I, they're, they're, I, I was pretty close for Mike Tramp. I was this close. Yeah, that's going to be cool. Yeah, I hope, I hope that goes well, man. Well, thanks for hanging out, man. It's always a pleasure to have you on here. Um, it's been too long since we've hung out like this, so it, it's been great to see you. Yeah, for real. Like I, you know, um, that's one of those things, you know, I'm pretty much retired from podcasting. If people ask me, I'll come on or whatever. Right. Um, but uh, this was meaningful to me. I appreciate it. It's been too long since we chatted just even socially or whatever. Uh, but, you know, to have a topic like this, to talk with someone, you know, that I love like you, I, it means the world to me. So thanks for having me on. Thanks for talking about this. Um, I will not uh, forget it anytime soon. Appreciate it. Until right. next time. I'm the Sly Dog. Peace, love, rock and roll.
sister's unflattering plight Star faces, star the sight The beauty of the night has disappeared Wrinkled with mileage, black with the sores No time for the makeup man, the famished fire roars
for listening to the Sly Dog Music Cast. If you want to know what's going on, follow me on Twitter at Sly Dog Music Cast or Facebook at Sly Dog Music Cast. Thanks again for listening. Peace, love, and music.